This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, March 7, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. Many of the checks that constrain private sector unions simply don't exist for those in the public sector. Private sector unions, at the very least, know that profitability will at some point constrain the ability to deliver better benefits. Neil McCluskey, Associate Director of the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom, comments. The last 10 days or so, there has been a great deal of, of, of tumult, of uproar in Madison, Wisconsin. And what set it off was Governor Walker there proposed a number of restrictions on collective bargaining, which is especially important because it didn't apply to firefighters or police, but it did apply to teachers by far the biggest group of of people who collectively bargain uh, for their compensation. What his law or his proposal would do would would be to eliminate their ability to collectively bargain benefits, so health care, life insurance, things like that, and would put a cap on the total amount of money that could be bargained over for wages de facto limiting their ability to bargain over salaries. And those are the two biggest sticking points uh, in this proposal, and it's really what brought tens of thousands of people to Madison to protest. These teachers are coming out on weekdays, presumably. Um, How does that that happen? One of the kind of powers of labor unions, of course, is that you can easily organize people. They all belong to one organization. And the great thing, depending on your perspective, for teachers is you tell them all to go somewhere, and what they do is often like what they did in Wisconsin. All the teachers called in, quote-unquote, sick, so that they could all go to Madison for very coordinated protests. Now, contrast that with, for instance, Tea Party protests, which we'd seen in such numbers in the previous year. Those are generally people who don't all belong to one professional organization, and part of their Uh, uh, participation in that organization is to go and coordinated protests. Those were all people who had to leave their jobs, who had to deal with individual problems, and then go to protests. So one of the things you need to keep in mind when you see all these teachers and other union members protesting in state capitals is it's easy, relatively easy for them to do this. In Wisconsin, they all just called in sick from school and all went there. It's a lot harder for the average taxpayer, the person who's paying for the benefits and the salaries of public employees, to have counter-protests. It's really a great example, a very visual example, of concentrated benefits and diffuse costs at work. And that's what enables special interests to take from taxpayers. And taxpayers, they can't counter all those individual interests, and then they end up only being able to counter it when their whole tax bill gets huge. Andrew Colson makes the argument that getting rid of collective bargaining is not going to necessarily improve school quality. It's it's true that if you eliminate collective bargaining, it's certainly not in and of itself going to improve school quality. Ultimately, what collective bargaining is, is it's a symptom of the root cause of all our educational problems which is that we have a single government monopoly. And even if you got rid of collective bargaining, you'd still have monopoly schools that don't actually have to compete with other schools. They're getting your tax money no matter what. So it's not the collective bargaining that's the problem. That said, it's that you have a government monopoly that is like the perfect breeding ground for a monopoly over labor, for a teacher's union. And those teacher's unions 
can then exert incredible political power to keep that monopoly, which is the problem in education. So collective bargaining doesn't solve the problem, but eroding the unfair power of teacher unions that they have over taxpayers is the key to moving away from an inherently broken system. You have said one of the problems with uh, this collective bargaining issue is that taxpayers are not the ones with whom these unions are bargaining collectively. What What does that mean? What would that even look like? So think about how private sector unions would work. And of course, private sector unions are much less influential than they used to be. And what a private sector union basically is, is a bunch of people who are employed by a company or want to be, all getting together and saying, we will agree that we will work for a salary of X with benefits of Y. What has to happen, though, is that employer has to ultimately agree to provide that of his, his or her own free will. That's the private sector. In the public sector, what happens is all the public employees essentially get together and say, we will only agree to work for salary X and benefits Y. And that's what we'll say to our employer. Now, the employer is actually the taxpayer. That's the person whose money this is, or the taxpayers. But they don't get to negotiate with the unions. They don't have a say in this. It's an especially bad problem in education where they're supposed to be, their voice, and they're you know, working on their behalf, it's supposed to be school districts. And that usually means school boards. And the fact of the matter is school boards are elected, and the people who have the most power to influence those elections, the best organized, the ones with the most money, and the taxpayers that those school boards are supposed to represent, it's the teachers' unions, the people that the school board members are supposed to negotiate with. So the reality is, the taxpayers, the employers, don't have any real power, and the the employees, at least the unions that represent them, have all the power. So this is not the same as private sector unions, and the fact of the matter is the employer has no power in this, and that's taxpayers, and the taxpayers are the ones who end up losing the most. You do see, if you look at polling, that there tends to be a majority support for labor unions, that, that people don't want to see them lose what they're calling collective bargaining rights. Of course, these are rights that aren't counterbalanced by equal rights of the employers we talked about. The taxpayers don't have any ability to say no. But one of the reasons that it seems there's so much sympathy, especially for teachers, is there's this constant din, this ongoing narrative that teachers make very low wages and that they would struggle to to pay bills, even now, but especially without the unions. Well, if you actually look at how long they work and what they get paid, it's absolutely not the case. So in Wisconsin, the average annual salary, according to the National Education Association, so this is the teachers' union, it's not you know, Cato salary data, the average teacher makes $51,264 a year. But it's an important point. They only have to work 180 days a year. Usually you add on top of that five days of in-service or something like that. And according to Bureau of Labor Statistics time diary data, where teachers wrote down exactly what they were doing every hour of the months where they were contracted to work, they only work about seven and a half hours a day. That includes all the time they're grading and other things. So they work 1,388 hours a year for their $51,264 salary. That comes out to $36.93 an hour, so about $37 an hour. 
If you multiply that by 2,000 hours, which is about 50 weeks a year at 40 hours a week, you know, what the average person roughly works, well, that's a $73,860 annual salary. That's not bad. That's pretty good. That's far above the national average. So it's absolutely not true that teachers are getting some sort of you know, desperately low wage. That said, there are no doubt teachers that probably should make a lot more because they're providing a lot more value. There are probably lots of teachers that are providing less value. But so long as unions are in control, they negotiate a single salary schedule for everyone, and those good teachers can't get the reward they deserve, and the bad teachers can't be uh, compensated accordingly and encouraged to find other work. Neil McCluskey is Associate Director of the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom. Read more of his work at Cato.org.